Welcome back to Homestuck Made This World, a show about critical analysis and contextualization of the webcomic Homestuck. I'm Michael, and with me, as always, is Cameron. Yep. Today is part episode 9-3, which will wrap up episode 9 of Homestuck Made This World and uh, leave us prepared for the next episode, episode 10, in, in case you thought I was going to get up to some funny business and put a different number next. Um... And yeah, like that's that's kind of where we are. Like this entire episode, like some sort of nine four. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm gonna split uh, Act Six, Intermission Five into three distinct parts. Right. Yeah. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna pepper it with sub intermissions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great. <laughs> uh any business to start with i know uh, uh f boy island is the second season is over uh but is there any sort of f boy island check-in to be done no f boy f boy complete oh okay well it's a cowboy movie this morning oh I, I was gonna say i have an f boy island to check in on uh it's a magical little land called new jersey because recently <laughs> i finished uh watching The Sopranos, and followed it up with The Many Saints of Newark. It's great, right? It is great. and <laughs> It's the wildest fucking thing. So, like, The Sopranos is good, just by the way. Like, in case you were wondering, like, uh, I'd heard it talked up a lot over the past mm-hmm. decade or so, and I'd only seen, like, scattered episodes and clips, and I didn't really have a great handle on it. And this past summer, I was like, I should, like, actually buckle down and watch The Sopranos. It's it's true. It's worth all the investment, and it's worth all of the time. This is not spoilers mm-hmm. because it uh, this will have no meaning to you. <laughs> but when AJ parks that car in the forest, <laughs> it accidentally catches it on fire. Oh my! This is God. one of the funniest things I've ever seen. It is so so funny. Um, <laughs> like AJ Soprano is, a, is an icon. <laughs> Like a like just a little like absolute fuck up icon. Yes. The the entire show is just like it is as good as people said it was, right? Like mm-hmm. everyone has talked about how good it was for, you know, over a decade now, and I'm just like, okay, whatever. But then I watched it and I'm like, holy crap, like this this is as good as everyone has always said it is. Uh it is much smarter uh than you would think it would be like it's like a a ahead of its time right it like uh Mm, yeah it it, prescient yes right we talked in the lost bonus episode about sort of like the birth of prestige tv uh around like rather peak tv at that time and sort of the transition into prestige tv and kind of all of these shows that follow the sopranos kind of mold of um you know like a uh, uh, conflicted male anti-hero right your mm-hmm. your mad men's and your breaking bads and, and your, to a lesser extent your dexters um the the thing that is kind of incredible about the sopranos is that it somehow laps every show that came after it in terms of like how sophisticated it can be in its approach to like the conflicted male anti-hero. Like it anticipates and responds to every <laughs> single discur- like you know pop culture critique discourse moment. <laughs> right. Like that is going well, it- to it, it's it's incredible how they do that. Yeah, it's the only one that has characters in the show being like 
maybe this shit sucks. Yeah. Maybe we shouldn't be doing this. <laughs> like this and not in like a like a hand ringy way, but in just a like looking at what they do and they're like, I don't know. Yeah. Like everything involving Christopher is just like, maybe this is not sustainable. <laughs> <laughs> like in a basic way. Or uh, maybe aspiring to be this guy. I forget what the the uh uh the the uh like attractive uh college boy that meadow really likes who whose story ends poorly who's like trying to be a gangster like his oh dad. oh uh jackie jr yeah jackie jr right like that that's the like uh you know do you want to be uh walter white uh-huh. well like if you want to be walter white like you know you gotta make <laughs> some choices and ultimately there's a lot of people that don't want you to be walter white uh-huh <laughs> <laughs> and they're gonna do a lot of stuff to prevent you from it um it, uh, it's it's very good stuff. Can I pitch you a, a show really quick, like a fanfic? Sure. Okay. I would never write it, but someone could. Car Cat. AJ Soprano. <laughs> Bobby Hill. <laughs> Ro- roommate. <laughs> AU. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god they oh uh oh they go to well let's see the meadow already, already went to columbia so where are they going to end up uh they hmm. gotta go to st john's college they're in the yeah. great books program yes <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> <laughs> oh my god that's oh aj would be so insufferable in a great books program well yeah after he yeah. read the people's history of the united yes. states he was already insufferable oh uh, you know, I know white people. Uh, that's, that's that's the Bobby Hill. Uh, well, what do you think of Many Saints? Because uh, show holds up, does everything everyone says it does. Mm-hmm. It works out great. It's even better when you know that David Chase wrote, you know, most of that show by lying down on a couch and just monologuing out loud, and then people would write down what he said. I did not realize <laughs> it was quite like that. Uh. <laughs> That's a little bit of an exaggeration, yeah. but that's that that is some episodes. He literally right. just laid there and young men sat around him and just wrote things down and then they would riff based on what he said. Wow. Yeah. Um yeah, so Many Saints is the reason I'm actually bringing it up here. <laughs> uh because Many Saints of Newark <laughs> is like the the like post homestuck, post uh like MCU uh way of engaging with the Sopranos, and it's really damn good. Right. Uh, I liked it a lot. I know a lot of mixed opinions on it, but I thought it was a very uh, powerful object that maybe tried to cram a little bit too much in two and a half hours. But mm-hmm. that in and of itself is interesting. Yeah, it's, it's you know, it, it can't be all things to all people. And it, it does have a lot to lift. Uh, but just in terms of what it does. And so no, no spoilers to this. Many Saints is a prequel to the Sopranos TV series, and it shows you some stuff that happened to Tony Soprano when he was a kid and a teenager. Um, but it's really about kind of like the the older men in his life. Mm-hmm. Um for uh, for listeners of this show, it's kind of like the scratch version, kind of the before us. <laughs> yes, exactly, right? <laughs> so like what ends up being so compelling about Many Saints? Is that it's doing all it, it as a as an object? I have no idea what this movie would look like or feel like or how you would make sense of it if you had not seen The Sopranos. 
uh, because it is like a, a supercut of the entire series, right? Like a condensation. Like there are all these things that happen, uh, and and it's not in the it's not made like a big show of, right? It's not egregious, but you're like, oh, this scene is an echo of this other scene from whatever season, right? So uh, uh, as you can tell from me talking about it, it actually benefits greatly from having watched the entire series like relatively recently. And you notice, like, all of these, like, paralleled, uh, uh, like, relationships or, like, character dynamics. And then also, like, in, in the pure fan service mode, uh, you get to see, like, the young versions of all the middle-aged mobsters that you know and love from the show. And you get to be like, oh, he's doing Polly's, like, body language. Oh, that's so cool. Like, I love that the actor did that, that he, like, studied, uh, his mannerisms and everything, uh... So uh, that's just my endorsement for both The Sopranos and Many Saints of Newark, in particular, uh, insofar as Many Saints of Newark is like the, I mean, it's subtitled, right, A Sopranos Story. So it's working Mm -hmm. precisely in this arena of like a Star Wars story type stuff. It is Mm -hmm. uh, uh, a way of approaching the, the continuity, the franchise, the IP in kind of this interesting, like, uh, changed time, changed place, remixy sort of sort of way, and I just think it, it ended up being really cool and, and rewarding for me. Yeah, it's it's also chock full of like replicated scenarios, as you were talking about, right? You know, this is why we, um, I think, you know, you and I, we kind of blanch, right? It when in Homestuck, like something that is a something like circumstantial sim- simultaneity right the the ability for things to repeat and that's a name that is given in the fiction right to name something that's happening in the comic but this is also like a basic building block of visual culture right like mm-hmm. the, what what this names is not a thing that is unique to homestuck and that's what's always a little bit i think funny about homestuck's um influence right is like uh, when you got a hammer, everything looks like a nail. When you got a homestuck, everything looks like a homestuck, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, X is of Riska uh, is is Y a homestuck, right? Right. Uh, well, in fact, all these things predate homestuck and postdate homestuck, and they're doing it in different ways. But like the opening of Many Saints of Newark, or not the exact opening, but one of the first scenes is like a weird replication of the uh, of the wedding from The Godfather. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and then it's got like weird replications inside of it. Ray Liotta plays two characters. Yes, like, it <laughs> he is. He plays oh, twins. It's and so it's cool. Not revealed that they're twins for a while. <laughs> and so you're like, what is? Go- Why is Ray Liotta in this movie twice? Right. And like that itself is an echo of something that happens in the show where they have a character. They inter- he's like very briefly introduced. He serves his function, and then he gets killed. And then that character, like his twin brother, comes back because it turns out that they like. <laughs> the actor and they regretted killing off his character so they just like made up a twin brother for him <laughs> and that twin brother becomes like <laughs> integral to the rest of the series <laughs> yeah that also happened in uh not not a twin brother thing but in deadwood <laughs> where uh the guy who uh, uh shoots the main character in the first season like in one of the first couple episodes mm-hmm. is just brought it back again later <laughs> um i'm forgetting that actor's name uh hold on i can tell you i unfortunately only uh, watched the first season of deadwood maybe deadwood is well, my next let, let me tell you this it's good uh-huh it, it i think it's as good as the sopranos for sure mm-hmm 
and you should give it a shot. It's also only three seasons, so it's a pretty light lift. Uh, but the movie is the opposite of A Many Saints of Newark, where it actively ruins the rest of it <laughs> because it, it it gives it's like a, a fucking Christmas story in its like um, <laughs> I don't know, like schmaltzy. Okay. You know what I mean? It's bizarre to me. And my and, uh, my very brave wife, of course, f- uh, found it very fulfilling. She like really liked uh-huh. the way that it like kind of brought everything together. I thought it was disgusting. Like <laughs> like it was like uh, trickster mode, but for, for the old west. But it, it's good, and it is a good kind of cap to it. As long as you're like willing to go along with what happens, I'm thinking of Garrett Dillahunt as the actor. Mm. He plays one uh, character who then uh, you know kind of gets uh, some stuff happens to him, and then the next season comes back as a totally unrelated guy (laughs) uh and it's just because they enjoyed working with him so that was the hbo way back then okay yeah so anyway uh watch the sopranos there you go uh (laughs) if we're done i guess i can summarize what happened in this reading sopranos made this we're at hard pivot sopranos made this world (laughs) episode one uh the ducks (laughs) yes Oh, which keeps coming back, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's so good at keeping the the symbols going. Yeah, uh, to the point that Kate Beaton wrote that book about it. <laughs> <sighs> All right. <clears throat> Act 6, Intermission 5 begins as the Meteor crew closes out their third year of traveling and prepares to enter the Alpha Session. Carcat finds Terezi passed out pantsless in a pool of Fago and contacts Dave, just as they are interrupted by Act 6, Intermission 5, Intermission 1, which reveals Caliborn has embarked on the next leg of his quest and is traveling on a new, strange planet while harassing Andrew Hussey to learn more about the green leprechaun minions he is acquiring. Meanwhile, John naps on the battleship, which Jade left parked on Jake's planet. John keeps the ring he took from Tavros nearby, a fact noted by Dave Sprite, who bids farewell to a sleeping John before zipping off along with the other sprites and consorts to explore the new session. Act 6, Intermission 5, Intermission 2 happens as Caliborn harasses Hussey some more about his gnome minions and their obtuse time travel powers. In the Dream Bubbles, Lord English's cracks in the furthest ring are on the cusp of forming a perfect circle. John finds a dream-based pirate ship, crewed by Vriska, Mina, Tavros, Arania, Aradia, and Sullux. They are trailed by a fleet of mind-controlled ancestors to attract L.E., courtesy of Arania, who admires Vriska and her stories of Mindfang for showing her what ambition, a lack of remorse, and a full psychic power set can do for you. John is confused by all of this, and Arania is more than happy to bring him up to speed, telling a long and extensive backstory about the cherub species. What happened was this. Cherubs are skeletal, winged beings who patrol vast swaths of space. They are by nature dichotomous, either good or evil, but exist in a combined state from birth until a natural moment of adolescent predomination when one personality wins out over the other. They are wholly asocial, and their mating process involves seeking out a member of their opposite aspect for an elaborate and destructive breeding ritual that involves them transforming into incredibly huge snake dragons infused with cosmic energy magic and engaging in a violent sex duel, the loser of which then deposits an egg on an opportune dead planet. Long, long ago, a good female cherub was tracking a male cherub of unthinkably destructive capacities, and after she subdued him, he deposited their egg on a planet that was once known as Earth. 
Mina interrupts the story because she has to go to the bathroom, and Nepeta and Feferi appear on the boat and join the crew. Arania then continues. As the particular cherub under discussion was fated for a grand destiny, mysterious servitors, revealed in the panels to be Gamzee, raised the cherub from birth, trapping the child in a room by itself and providing it with cherub's main sources of food, meat and candy, as well as computers and other gadgets. Eventually, the cherub's normal maturation process was thwarted when Caliborn killed Calliope and entered his dead session, where he embarked on his tedious quest and eventually met Yaldabaoth, who offered him a choice, to either embark upon a new, near-impossible quest ending in ultimate power and destruction, or sacrifice himself now to effect an act of salvation later. He chose destruction. Caliborn's game session was transmuted into a vast game of cosmic billiards, requiring him to knock entire planets into a black hole in order to unlock his true and final planet. Along the way, each planet he destroys bestows upon him a new leprechaun minion, Leprechauns being a magical and mysterious race with time-based powers and an intricate nine-level system of romance that Arania is more than happy to tell us all about. Riska silences her and, behind her back, high-fives Mina, who is also getting sick of this. Arania is annoyed. On the meteor, Karkat is shocked to discover Terezi's eyes have been healed off-screen by Arania. Terezi admits that she has fallen prey to self-doubt and is now in a deeply toxic relationship with Gamzee, who reinforces all her worst thoughts about herself. The fact is, she deeply regrets killing Vriska, even though that is apparently what needed to happen for reality to continue to exist. In Act 6, Intermission 5, Intermission 3, Caliborn harasses Hussey some more over his newly acquired elves. Back on the pirate ship, the crew completes Lord English's circle through the furthest ring and finds the location of his hidden treasure, an ominous skull-shaped island. Aradia tells John she's only hanging around because she's eager to see what happens when all this stuff breaks to pieces in the end. Arania now tells a story about a pair of magic MacGuffins, the legendary Rings of Life and Void, the latter of which turns its bearer invisible, and the former of which brings a dead wearer back to life. In case it's not clear, Roxy until recently had the Void Ring, and John apparently has the Life Ring. Upon learning there has been, all this time, a means for resurrecting her, Vriska becomes irate. She yells at Tavros for losing the Life Ring to John until, fed up with her conniving ways, he flies off. He is followed by Solix, who bails with Nepeta and Feferi. Vriska says that ring or no ring, she will claw her way back to relevance on her own terms and throws off the cosplay pirate coat she's been wearing this entire time. Back on the meteor, instead of mediating Terezi and Gamzee's relationship or preparing for the new session, Rose is sloppy drunk and hanging out with the mayor, much to Kanaya's frustration. In Act 6, Intermission 5, Intermission 4, Caliborn complains to Hussey about his obnoxious frog minions. In the furthest ring, Curlos takes Vriska's abandoned jacket, which we now note shares a strikingly similar design to Lord English's Cairo overcoat. John, Vriska, Mina, and Aradia venture into the Skull Island cave. Mina explains to John that, due to her acquisitive and scampish nature, she is inevitably going to steal the Ring of Life from him and engage in various escapades. She begs him not to let this happen, as she feels like she has a real opportunity to change, and he awkwardly agrees. 
Meanwhile, Riska discovers Caliborn's old Magic MacGuffin chest, which now has a mysterious new treasure inside it. Before Riska can reveal what it is, however, the narrator switches the scene to the Salamander Casey, aka Viceroy Bubbles Von Salamancer, who is on Jake's planet. Casey does a silly dance, then uses their necromantic powers to summon a skeleton consort army, and begins naming each skeleton individually. Riska screams at the narrator and overturns the MacGuffin chest, forcing the focus back to her as she gloats over spoiling the reveal. The treasure turns out to be nothing more than a strange, transparent version of the Spurb House logo. The treasure was allegedly a weapon Lord English used once, at which moment it became something that could only ever be used against him, which is why it has been hidden away. The object is physically intangible, and as John experimentally reaches through it, he becomes blurry and indistinct before being zapped away. Simultaneously, John's arm retroactively appears, scattered throughout dozens of previous panels of Homestuck. In Act 6, Intermission 5, Intermission 5, Caliborn complains to Hussey some more about his puppet minions, who turn out to be literally made of felt. In Andrew Hussey's mansion, Spade Slick finds Hussey's corpse in Miss Paint. Spades uses Dye's doll to summon all of the felt and assume leadership of the crew, letting Miss Paint take Snowman's former position. Upon Crowbar's advice, they use the broken fifth wall to go back to Doc Scratch's apartment, which now floats in the center of the green sun. Crowbar tells Spades that Doc had a secret escape hatch, which turns out to be the billiard ball server floating in the furthest ring from back in Act 5. Through the vast distance of Paradox Space, Slick sees the glow of the Alpha Session Skya and heads off toward the session. On the battleship, John's sleeping physical body also disappears, and he now finds himself confusedly teleporting to various random points in Homestuck's narrative. In Act 6, Intermission 5, Intermission 6, Caliborn crows triumphantly at Hussey about finally acquiring his last few Toad Goblin minions. However, Hussey has stopped responding, and Caliborn gets increasingly angry, deciding he doesn't need to talk to anyone else after all, until John flashes into existence behind him. They stare each other down before Cans, I mean Toad Goblin 15 with the maroon stripe hat, punches John out of the frame. John zaps back into the MSPA website proper, then arrives on Jake's planet, which is totally deserted. The Meteor crew finally enters the session, followed at a distance by the ring-powered Jack Noir and PM. Evil Jade appears, to everyone's dismay. On Jake's planet, John is bored and lonely, but refuses to let it get him down, playing solitaire and doing his laundry to pass the time. Eventually, the whole Meteor crew is teleported by Evil Jade into his immediate vicinity, to his utter joy. Curtains fall on Act 6, Intermission 5, on April 13th, 2013, and Year 4 of Homestuck ends. That also turns out to be the end of all the content on Homestuck Disc 2, which we got back in Act 5, but when we tried to insert Disc 3, we are insulted by green text that tells us such a thing doesn't exist. Caliborn, finally untrammeled by Andrew Hussey, cackles as we stand on the precipice of Act 6, Act 6. It's over. <clears throat> over. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's what the uh, Homestuck has done. Did people think that was real? Um, no. <laughs> okay, good. There were a lot of people who thought Homestuck was going to end uh, on this date. Um, partly because Hussey had said, like, you know, the plan for 2013 was to end Homestuck. Uh, right. But no, no such promise was ever made, and uh, this is not 
you know, like when this happened, uh, I'm sure there were some people who were like, oh, no, is it ending? And then like very clearly and quickly, like, no, it's not like <laughs> there's still more stuff to mm-hmm. do. I don't know why it should be over. <laughs> I like I you can feel the gears grinding uh-huh. more more than ever before. Right. Like I didn't know what I was. T- I was a fool past me was but but a historical me was but a fool (laughs) to believe that the pace and process of homestuck for any moment before this one was not brisk and (laughs) speedy right like good god (laughs) i just don't what are we doing (sighs) Like what? What is happening? Uh-huh. I kept thinking that, and I'm going to say this: the next two part, this part episode, and the next part episode has some of my favorite stuff in a while in it. I don't think mm. I don't think it's bad. Uh, I actually think it's quite interesting. You know, I mm-hmm. don't know if I enjoy reading it, but I do think it is interesting to think about. You know, th- those are two distinct things. Yeah, uh, uh, I think mm. it's interesting to think about. Okay, but uh, I don't. I just don't like it's just wheel spinning for the sake of wheel spinning it, it before you know I've talked about wheel spinning a lot but it has mostly been in the case of like nothing is occurring that like drives action forward right mm-hmm. it's mostly just people talking to one another about things that don't go anywhere it's just having conversations mm-hmm. it's a show about nothing right <laughs> that's fine um here it's it's just like actively moving backward over and over again literally a character gets uh, uh, shunted into the other verse uh-huh. and has to go relive the whole fucking thing uh-huh <laughs> <laughs> which is actually really cool like i you know um uh, I, you know i i do want to point out that lost also did this mm-hmm. <laughs> um that, that like this exact thing there are multiple seasons of lost that's like hey what if uh, we just went back and talked about other shit that happened at the same time as the previous things in earlier seasons because we don't know where to go from here mm-hmm. um so this is a tried and true thing but uh yeah i don't know um unpleasant probably i understand why people stopped reading uh-huh. I, although i have said that i believe at every turn <laughs> Uh, yeah. Um, so, you know, uh, on, as you might imagine, uh, complaints about this in the thread, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. that, uh, for instance, like Oliver Rainey's exposition, uh, which is, you know, this is, this is one of the weird <laughs> things about Homestuck is, uh, you can say like, hey, it's, uh, not really interesting or fun to read, a huge text dump from a character that just like explains the entire obtuse history of like a, a race of aliens that is like integral to the plot. Um, right. And is like, and it's not clear like what parts of the things that we were being told are going to be necessary for understanding what's getting ready to happen, especially when the content itself. None of it. Right. <laughs> None of it is going. Here's the deal. They're Manichaean. And so then, therefore, their positions flip. The end. That's all we are going to. I'm just, just that's just a shot call. That's all yeah. we're going to need to know. Well, uh, so people, <laughs> people uh, in the thread complain about the fact that uh, cherubs are hard coded good and evil, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
which is uh, something you might expect. I think, in fact, it's not as uh, vocal as you might think now. I think if you were to tell this story right now, your your fan base might push back on you uh, uh, or on this point a bit more. Um, but, you know, people are like, why is this happening? And then, of course, we get the joke out of it, which is one of my favorite jokes, actually, in the comic, which is the leprechaun romance joke. Oh, it's really good. Like, that's what I'm saying. I, I don't <laughs> enjoy the physical experience of sitting and reading this. But the payoffs are very funny, and I think it is funny to talk about, right, that that her entire thing is just doing what the comic does repeatedly, and every character in the comic itself is going, oh my god, I can't believe we're doing this again. Like, you can feel, and, and there's so many dialogue sections around this where, uh, you know, I think it's, uh, gosh, the, the, uh, the troll with the eyes that are different colors. Selix. Solix, why the a supercut of me not remembering Solix's name, right? <laughs> like I don't know why this keeps happening. I just can't do it. Uh, but where Solix is like, this all sucks, and I'm tired of hearing it. You know, <laughs> essentially, or like I can't believe we're doing this shit again, right? Uh huh. Um, the characters themselves are saying, you know, and it's because I, I, you know, this is pure speculation, but I do get a sense that Hussey is sitting there, tapity tapity tap, do 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 writing this and that we're getting stream of consciousness of the way they feel Uh about actually having to write this shit out like the character voice is i can't believe i'm still doing this shit Mm -hmm. that's what it feels like to me it's like like if i were writing this this is exactly how i would do it like it's in the middle of the sentence and it will change to be like (sighs) you know like (laughs) A verbal diarrhea form of uh, the the longest sigh in human history. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yes, you're right. It, this payoff to the leprechaun romance joke is, uh, or, or in the leprechaun romance joke, is very funny to me. Yeah, because um, it's like just it. here it is again. Here's a more complicated fucking romance thing. Who cares? Right, and it's it's re- <laughs> it's rewritten specifically in the phraseology of the troll romance exposition, and it's so this is on page six zero zero seven, and it has like the troll or the the leprechaun romance uh, grid, which is just all of the marshmallows from the Lucky Charms cereal. <laughs> And uh, and it has like the felt members underneath and they have like all of these symbols flashing over their heads. And Arania uh, is underneath like saying it and she has uh, there's a it's a jade pose that we're getting reused. It was the jade pose that was used um, way back when she was introduced and someone told her to stop being a furry. <laughs> and she was like, oh, but you could never do oh, that. That's right. Um, <laughs> and so it's Arania, like, looking really overjoyed. And it's, the problem is that when the subject of leprechaun romance is broached, our overly obsessive troll intellects instantly assume the most ingratiating posture of admiration imaginable, which makes it hard. Hard to give it proper academic focus, I mean, because of how great it is. But we will do our best <laughs> to understand regardless. And then it just goes into, like, it, it re-explains troll romance, and then it explains leprechaun romance in distinction to troll romance <laughs> it's really good it's very but here like we got like, one step out we got to make one meta move here okay what does it mean that the funniest character for this reading other than like john's antics which are actually pretty good i think but the funniest character instead of jokes is just a set of meta jokes that ultimately is making fun of the comic itself and maybe its fans yeah 
you know what I mean? Like, that's the funniest character here is someone who is actively prodding everything that you might unironically enjoy here. Mm-hmm. Like exposition, explanation, fan theorizing, all that kind of stuff, right? You know, she she is the um, less oppressive Calliope. Mm-hmm. And so she's the, but it, she's the center of the joke and the center expositor of my God, who could give a shit ism, you know? <laughs> yes. Um, and, but it, it is funny, but there's so much effort put into the joke here. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's sort of the other like sort of weird thing about Homestuck is like, so let's say you're reading this and I'm like echoing, right? Sort of the, the forms of arguments that are had in the thread. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is bad storytelling because it's all just exposition dumps. Well, says someone else, don't you realize that this is, uh, like, part, like, this is what Arrhenius' character is, right? Like, th- mm-hmm, if you mm-hmm. if you object to these exposition dumps, you're missing the true point, which is that Arania is a character who uh, is prone to exposition dumps, right? And she gets talked about as, like, an exposition fairy, which is a TV tropes kind of thing, and it's a callback to um, uh, the Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time, right? The little fairy that told mm-hmm. uh, uh, Navi, who told you how to, like, navigate the game and stuff Mm -hmm. so that's like one kind of pocket response like well if you if you object to this you're really missing the point because you're supposed to take it as her being like an overbearing expository figure and then you say well you know nevertheless like uh i don't think that this is good because like i want the story to be going and then the other response is like well don't you realize that it's a joke like this is this is a humor comic, right? Uh, so we got to have these jokes, and uh, you know this is this is a joke about the fandom, and so this can then split two ways. One, mm-hmm. it's a joke about fans uh, implicit there, uh, the fans I don't like, right? That this is like mm-hmm. castigating some sort of fan behavior, or the other option, which is that like, oh, this is more like the da- you know, the the ancestors writ large. This is like all in good fun joking, like oh, hasn't hasn't uh some ha- haven't we all been in Arania at some point, right? Going on about something that nobody else cares about. Um, Cause isn't that Never. a thing, fa- right? Not <laughs> one time in my life <laughs> said the podcaster. Um, yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Not even once. <laughs> yeah. So, but uh, uh, I think your point is still extremely uh, relevant because th- these are the things again, that I am interested in and in kind of this latter end of the comic. Um, and it's, like I, I am willing to think harder about uh, this than it seems like a, a lot of other contemporary readers are. Um, in that, like, yeah, it does seem to me like what is what is happening that the the main like object of ridicule here is like the over enthusiastic fan theorist uh, who is being like figured in the comic here, and also like. I, I right like I don't know like filling in all of these blank spaces uh uh ad nauseum in ways that maybe they didn't need to be filled in like you could you could tell us about cherubs right you didn't have to tell mm-hmm. us about cherubs in this way and so what does it mean to like fold in uh just all of this huge swath about like cherub mythology and their like yeah. physiology and biology like what what does that do right and it uh has uh, right. something that you've described before as uh, it has a little bit of the flavor of like hussy forcing you to eat the ice cream yeah <laughs> too way too much right but the uh yeah you know that you got you got to smoke the whole pack uh-huh. of of lore <laughs> 
I, I mean, I think the useful comparative here, right, is like thinking about this in relationship to Nana Sprite mm-hmm. exposition, right? Which is like exposition written within a character voice that's like fun and is telling you about the world because they're kind of like weirdly computational or something, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, whatever the metaphysics are of Skya in the suburb game and all that stuff, who cares, right? right? I mean, someone cares, but I'm saying like that's beside the point of what we're talking about here, right? But like, uh, Nana Sprite has access to a different world or a different perspective on the world and then through character voice tells us about it, right? Mm-hmm. And that is not a character voice that is hostile and it's importantly not a character voice that stands in for anything other than the exposition of the narrative, right? right? Like, uh, whereas uh, Arania is a fan. Mm-hmm. Like, this is fan voice. And I would say that uh, the shift that has happened in Act 6 is that we have a plurality of fans and engagers and reader figures. Mm-hmm. We used to have a lot of author figures. Mm-hmm. And now we have pretty few, honestly, author figures and a whole cast. In fact, the majority of the f- cast in focus mm-hmm. at this point are uh, uh, audience figures of some sort, right? Mm-hmm. Arania, Vriska is now an audience figure mm-hmm. uh, in in the terms of like, no, I'm not going to let the narrative do this kind of stuff to me. You know, and, mm-hmm. and I mean, she's also Bastion, right? Yeah. Um, in that regard. Um, and uh, Calliope and Caliborn, right? Like, mm-hmm. they eat up a huge amount of, if not literal words on the screen, then uh, the context for those words, right? Mm-hmm. Like, people are re- reacting or responding to them. Um, and, th- I mean, there's some great stuff that's, like, also in here, I think, um, around that stuff. But I think that really thinking about six, or about, oh, and, and then, of course, I, they're just not in this reading, so I didn't really think about it. But, like, all the the Beforest characters, mm-hmm. right? Like, they're all that. Like, every yeah. single one of them is that mm-hmm. in, in some form or function. Uh, and then John gets turned into one in some ways, although he doesn't talk about it a huge amount. But literally, he's turned into a reader of Homestuck, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as much as you can within the diegesis. And so, as you, you were saying before, right, like, the the two valid responses here, right, and I can imagine people going for both is like, well, like, in, I guess I should say, my proclivity here is to think of that in terms of, like, what is on the page and what's in front of us. Mm-hmm. Hey, what the hell is going on with all these audience stand-in characters mm-hmm. uh, against uh, authorship characters who are fa- fairly few and far between? And uh, you know, Dave gets a lot of dialogue around these the next couple partisodes here, um, but it is dial it, you know the first author stand-in figure essentially um, who is thoroughly deauthorized. Mm-hmm. Right, Dave is a character now, yeah, right? not a kind of hussy-ish. Uh, figure Mm -hmm. so like that that's a notable thing to me that our previous we are evacuating all three kind of figures even in the moment of expanding our cast and so like that's the meta move that i'm interested in here of course but as you just said right you could always say well the fiction the diegesis whatever right the (laughs) the the narrative uh uh it overwhelms all of that right there's internal logic for why all these things happen and so you just got to go with the flow buddy Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's like insufficient for talking about aesthetic objects, right? Like, same. I I don't I I just don't think you can analyze Transformers on the term of tra- on the terms of Transformers and like come out with something culturally um, 
expansive or uh, positionally analytical, right? Mm -hmm. How does this thing work and how does it function in the media ecology that it's in? I don't think you can get there without with doing that, right? With uh, only with pretending that the rules a piece of fiction give you are the only rules you can think of it through. That's like. Roger Ebertism, and I mean that in the most uh, offensive way possible, right? Like, uh, to to me, Roger Ebert's uh, dictum that you have to evaluate something by the rules it sets out for itself. What was it trying to do? Is like absolutely like obliterating your ability to actually talk about that thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, I, I just think that's insufficient for doing the thing. But it does make sense. Like, if you're, you know, right? I I, I think it is a valid response. I just don't think it gets you very far. Right. Well, it's like, I, I, I yeah, to, to clarify, I think yeah. um, it is, we are not saying that you should never do that. In fact, it isn't, it is a good first move to look at a thing and be like, what does this thing seem to be trying to do? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, sure. Like, what are Absolutely. the rules that it's setting out for itself? How does it follow through? And then uh, the next sort of uh, critical move is being able to step back and call bullshit. Right, or or just say like, are these rules sufficient for actually talking about the thing? Right, right. like, uh, well, that's what I mean. You know, when on, I say call bullshit. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. like, <laughs> right, right. So like, uh, just King Things, right, uh, is uh, is a show that uh, where we read through the works of Stephen King in publication order, uh, and you when you look at the text that Stephen King is writing up to the point where we are now in the late eighties, right, like he's working in a very particular set of genre spaces, right, like. He's working in science fiction. He's working in horror. He's working in fantasy. And you have to think about those works in their genre context, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can't stop talking about the... Te- you can't talk about The Stand, I don't think, in, a, in an honest way without talking about The Lord of the Rings, right? right. <laughs> Especially given the context around it, right? And so then what are the values that are built into those texts and how they work or whatever? The Stand does not, inside of itself, give you the tools to actually think about those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, ultimately, what you can say if you only look at The Stand is uh golly gee whiz isn't randall flag evil right or isn't it great that the white wins out right Mm -hmm. you need some additional context around it that's all to say right i don't know you know this is something we've talked about many times on the show at this point if you're just tuning in for episode nine three welcome and uh, (laughs) go back and listen to the other ones uh to see to see what's up around these things but that's all to say like i i just don't know how you could do this kind of new critic only looking at the object kind of thing for this entire set of readings that we've done mm-hmm. uh cuz it's so meta focused and it's so constantly kind of kicking out to a big meta move um and not to the meta move of game rules that we've talked about a lot of times right like the meta moves of lore and readership and authorship and the never ending story literally yep uh, 5972, uh, which is, again, back in the middle of uh, cherub, like, breeding ritual exposition. Uh, we get our second Auron, because the uh, cherubs, being these winged skeletons, when they uh, mate, turn into a giant space snakes that are one astronomical unit in length. Uh, and then they bite each other's tails and they become, you know, a big double Ouroboros. And so here on the page we have, uh, there's one black and one white and they're like flashing back and forth. And that's again, the, the signal or the sign of Auron, uh, the medallion from the never ending story that, uh, mm-hmm. the childlike empress bears as a kind of, you know, a sign of her power and that she bestows to various other characters in Fantastica that makes them, as we talked about in the previous part episode, uh, that like focalizes the narrative onto them. Um, and then 
quite literally in the book, The NeverEnding Story. Again, you can check out our bonus episode on this, uh, patreon.com slash range touch, where we talked about this extensively. Uh, the snakes are literally real. They are the gates mm-hmm. into and out of Fantastica. Um, and so, like this is another kind of like weird move here right like the uh it, it, you don't have to like necessarily read it through this way but if we're like working back the logic uh the snakes in the neverending story are just like the literal gates like you have to pass through them like they like raise their bodies mm-hmm. um uh so are we suggesting here that like, like is the idea here maybe that the these different types of fan interactions represented by the two different cherubs, right? Like a uh, uh, sort of protective and destructive. Um, are these entryways into the fiction? Shall we do something with that? I don't mm. really know because I'm not sure to what degree that's been thought through. Right. I, I mean, I, my gut instinct here. And again, you, if you haven't listened to the bonus episode, I would strongly encourage you to go listen to that. Um, uh, both because uh, you have to give me money to do so, but mm-hmm. also because we talk about this kind of extensively in the episode, right? Like, I I don't know if I think that it's as metaphorical as that. Mm-hmm. I think that this has the literal function of, like, the emblem, meaning that, it, like, it, it makes the conditions of the world possible. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Um. You know, and I have a question for you, too, right? So one thing is I want to say this whole uh, lore world building thing, I don't really know what it is. I think it's really wonderfully illustrated. Uh-huh. You know, I've I've been kind of critical about what's been going on visually recently in Homestuck, but uh, I think this is great. Um, 5971, the, the, the two serpents attacking one another. Uh-huh. That, it's great. It's like, really that's good. truly, really, really good. But I have a question for you here. The tangled struggle between the green Oz is exceedingly brutal and can last for sweeps. What is an Oz? Uh, AUS. Astronomical unit. Green uh, AUs. AUs. Uh huh. And oh, it's uh, you know, the sorry, red miles. That makes sense. Right. Yes. I got it. <laughs> oh, yeah. One astronomical unit in length. Mm-hmm. Right. I forgot. Okay. Because I actually read that, it, uh, I'm in the re- I made a note of it because uh, I was like, "Well, RN Oz, <laughs> uh huh." That is actually a fortuitous little pun, Green Oz. Yeah, I don't know. I just <laughs> thought it was interesting. Uh, but right, I I get it. I now get the joke. Speaking of illustrations, uh, quote unquote, joke. Do you want to go to uh-huh. five nine six six? Five fifty nine sixty six. Yeah, yeah. So this is uh, uh, again, this is Arania explaining kind of uh, the backstory of cherubs, and she's particularly talking about this the one really destructive cherub that is uh, going to be revealed to be uh, Calliope and Caliborn's father. Um, mm-hmm. And this is illustrating like how destructive he is, and it, uh, Arania talks about how he you know basically zips around space and just like blows crap up, and so yep. we get uh, like an alien planet. Which is a troll planet. So whatever, you know, universe this is happening in, there are trolls. We have these two trolls looking up at the sky. And there's like red uh, light flashing. Uh, And then the next page, 5967, is everyone being obliterated, right? Just incinerated in flame. All these trolls are dead. These these two trolls are fan trolls. During the Homestuck Kickstarter, the highest... (laughs) One is wearing jorts. Yes. (laughs) 
<laughs> I just want to say yes. that, which I like. I'm not, that's not a criticism. Yeah. One is, is wearing uh, jorts, the other is wearing a top hat. <laughs> any character who is not wearing full-length pants and or full-length ankle-length skirt immediately gets a thumbs up from me for having any kind of diversity in clothing. So <laughs> I, I appreciate uh, Like what appears to be like a pocketed vest with jorts, that's cool to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so during the Kickstarter... Uh, the highest support tier that you could uh, go on was to pledge $10,000. And this got you all of the previous reward packs, plus your fan troll will become canon and appear in Homestuck. (laughs) So two people did this and got their fan trolls canonically into Homestuck. And they appear for a page, and then they get incinerated. Now that's awesome. (laughs) What what a fuck you! God damn, that's great. Also, this one has nunchucks, which is sweet. It is good. Uh, That are apparently made out of troll horns, right? If we're going to take the coloring there. Oh yeah, you're Um, right. You're right. uh, But uh, this this also speaks, I think, to like the reader fandom or the yeah the reader fandom author kind of uh, circle. when when this reward tier like was seen like back when the Kickstarter launched, everyone who saw it, uh, I mean, had, you know, not everyone. There were some people who were like, oh, my gosh, what could that mean? But like the vast majority of people uh, in the Something Awful thread particularly were like, oh, yeah, like this means your fan troll is going to show up for one panel and then die. <laughs> uh, I do want to mention here that uh, reader fandom author is my uh OC uh-huh. in my Hunger Games fanfic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that's just to say, uh, you know, it it is kind of a fuck you, but it's also sort of a, a fuck you that everyone was expecting or like most people yeah. were expecting. I'm pretty sure like I, as far as I'm aware, the the people who um, uh, paid the big bucks for this mm-hmm. n- were not upset. I don't think I heard them complain. I actually haven't heard about the um the troll in blue. I haven't heard much about her, but I know the the guy in the top hat. Uh he actually didn't even have a fan troll. He just uh like his whole story is that he was deployed in Iraq and mm-hmm. uh he uh came back and he had like money from like his service and he didn't have a family or anything and he said that when he was uh, deployed, like Homestuck was a thing that he really enjoyed reading. And so he wanted like it sort of like was a a, a centering or a calming thing for him. And so he uh, mm-hmm. like, you know, gave the money and, and like created a fan troll. He actually asked for help in creating a fan troll because he wasn't sure how. From from uh, the government coffers to the war in Iraq, right to Andrew Hussey's pockets. Uh-huh. The story of the circulation of money is always wondrous and strange. Mm hmm. Um, that's a that's uh Karl Marx actually from the German ideology. Mm-hmm. Um, the that's wild. That is a wild story. It, it is uh to to hear. Uh, I don't know what to do with that even a little bit. <laughs> um, I, yeah. I mean, you know, any kind of compromise or, or or it seems like communication with Hussey in a broad sense that I've ever learned about, including a video you sent me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like Lucy kicking the football or Lucy with the football, right? Like, you know, what's going to happen. Yeah. Like no matter what the, the video that I sent you, you're talking about the PBS rise of web comics video. Correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is, you can find this on YouTube. It's still up. So you can look this up. It's got a whole bunch of web comic authors who talk about their work. Hussey is one of them. Um, can you say a little bit about what you mean? Like about Hussey's appearance in that video about kicking the can or what have you? 
Uh, yeah, Hussey's appearance in that video is like, well, you know, uh, what the the thing I wanted to do with Homestuck is make a thing that's a little bit of a game and a little bit of a puzzle. You need to solve it, you know, and and that's like contemporary for this reading, yes. right? It's like around in that time, twenty thirteen. You, I cannot believe that someone would say that. I, no, I can't believe it. I am disappointed. I am um, uh, upset. No. <laughs> Uh, I have a feel, I have animus in my heart about someone who would say that, like, hey, from the beginning, I made Homestuck as a thing to solve and a thing to engage with. And then you read Act 6, which is, in all of its forms, whether it's good-natured or, or not good-natured, that's for a reader to decide, and obviously people have different opinions both ways, but all of it, of Act 6 so far, has been... Two massive middle fingers, you know, fingers painted in, uh, nails painted in, swirly <laughs> saw symbols. Uh-huh. Massive middle fingers to people who are doing that. Yeah. Trying to solve this makes you annoying. Yeah, it makes you annoying, and the comic will call you an asshole. Mm-hmm. No matter what kind of fan you are, if you want to solve the thing and you're invested in it and you, like or, you know, want to learn about what's happening in the puzzle box and you start making assertions about that, you're the asshole in the comic, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you will be made into a type of character who people find annoying, uh, metaphysically disturbing, uh, that needs to be interrupted, uh, that, you know, you get turned into Vriska, (laughs) (laughs) right? Like, when Vriska overturns the box, right? I mean, that's the, that is the the puzzle-resolving instinct. Mm -hmm. That is a player insert or reader insert or an audience insert thing of like no 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 we're not kicking the can down the road we're gonna find out what's in the box Mm -hmm. and what what you find in the box is in fact homestuck the comic yep good luck good luck going through all the other panels right like uh uh, say uh the the game right spurb uh where the black king carries a a scepter or rather the white king it's the black king who steals it or however this works there's a scepter, right? And it's got Skaya at the top. Uh, and uh, Skaya is within Skaya. There's a whole, like, thing in the comic about how if you go into the, the scepter's orb, then you are actually going into Skaya itself. It just, like, puts itself within itself, right? It, it is just self-referential. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the solution to the puzzle. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like some sort of transparent cube in in a library on Nessus. Uh-huh. <laughs> All the stories, and in fact, this story, are inside of that cube. Oh. Also, I guess Homestuck's in there. Isn't yeah. that disturbing? God, Severian could have read Homestuck. <laughs> that's that's in the time skip. <laughs> when he was 16, he read Homestuck, and it explains everything about Severian. Oh, my God. Uh, the... <laughs> Uh, but yeah, you know what I mean? It, I just, so, you know, you see Hussey saying that, and I I was just like, this is the most disingenuous thing. You know what I mean? Like, these statements you were making and the, the comic you were writing, trying to put those in conversation with one another, someone's the asshole here. And I don't think it's like a Calliope or a Calibor. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. It's wild. Yeah. Absolutely. But again, that could just be part of the shtick too, right? right? Like. Like, that's another author character. Mm-hmm. I don't know if there, you know, we've we've seen this many times. I don't know if there is, like, a public persona, public voice of Hussey that is not some sort of performance. Right. Um, I think they're pretty canny about that. Right. Well, um, like, so. notably, Hussey in that video, 
you would not you don't hear Hussey's online voice in that video, right? The way Hussey no. talks to people on like Formspring or in the news posts uh, is nothing like the way Hussey talks in that video. No, it is the most direct and uh, explanatory, you know, mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. It, and, it, it, and that's post Kickstarter too, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I don't know yeah, when it was filmed exactly, but like, yeah, the video is going right, up right. post Kickstarter. Got it. Uh, yeah, it's fascinating. Um, speaking of, I guess, like weird directions or, or anything like that, we can we can revisit the topic of Gamzee, Um because if we're thinking here about like the Homestuck readership or like what this thing is saying about its readers, uh, Gamzy is we have Calliope and Caliborn who are uh, trapped in a room fit and spoiled that's the word that uh arania mm-hmm, uses mm-hmm. right they're given everything With- that they could want they're given candy and meat uh but they're also trapped uh and then they're given computers and they have to like uh figure out their entire life uh Based on this, right, on being trapped in a room with computers and trapped with each other. And this is all part of, like, uh, Gamzee's plan, uh, whatever that is, right? Because Gamzee has just, like, somehow gotten onto this, you know, future past Earth, and he is uh, uh, taking care of the cherubs. There's that great scene where uh, he has, like, the little baby cherub, and uh, when it's Calliope, he, like, hugs it, and she hugs him back. And then uh, the next one, it's uh, Caliborn, and he, like, bites Gamzee in the shoulder, and Gamzee's screaming. Uh, So if we think about, say, I don't know, if you're a popular webcomic author and uh, you have a huge fandom and it seems like no matter what you do there's about half of the people out there who are just pleasant and wonderful and doing fan art and being great and then there's this other half of your audience who no matter what you do seems to have it in for you seems to like be dedicated to like I don't know, just yelling at you or biting you or, you know, stalking her, harassing you, which are things that are really happening to Hussey. Mm-hmm. Right. right. Like there, that's a remediation of the author uh, fandom relationship, uh, I think. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, it also because of the way that Arania kind of sets it up. And I guess because of the literal facts of what Gamzee is up to doesn't end up being particularly flattering, right? Like, if you're a fan of this comic, you are someone who is stuck in a room looking at a computer, and uh, someone is keeping you from going outside. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And you gotta eat meat and candy. I will say I do, you know, in a general sense, I have, I think, a more dim view of the Calliope relationship. Mm -hmm. I I think Calliope is also a bad fan. Yeah. Um, uh, I think the comic is figuring her as a bad fan, too. It's just a different type of bad. Okay. Um, I, I mean, I think, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I think she is good in in the sense of like this Manichaean relationship. Mm-hmm. But I think like her, um, I don't know, her uh, taking, I think the comic is figuring what she did, right? Like over explaining, uh, constantly systematizing things that perhaps are not meant to be systematized or don't fully cohere into that, mm-hmm. even if they do end up being kind of written into the comic fully. Um, her taking the tools and self-inserting into the tools of that, or, you know, of, of all like the, the actors in the comic, mm-hmm. and then making them kind of, uh, or asserting that things are happening and just kind of 
bending everything to her will. I think that's also being figured as a negative relation. It's just obviously not mm-hmm. the, the same kind of negative. Mm-hmm. One is like, uh, one is insidious, mm-hmm. right? Hers is a more insidious version um, uh, than obviously the, the uh, very negative, obviously negative Caliborn relation. So I, I, I think both are bad fans, I, I you know, in, in the position of the comic. Mm-hmm. I I see where what you're saying. Um, we're gonna we're gonna watch this because yeah, I, obviously it's, I mean we're, we're still chasing her ghost around, right? Like mm-hmm. this is coming back. Yeah. Um, here here's just I want to I've I've threatened to do this, uh, but on this kind of topic and especially on the topic of of Gamzee, oh. I want to jump back into the book commentary. Now, notably, right? Don't the book- threaten me, Lutz. Don't do it. <laughs> notably, the book commentary comes you know way after uh, right, uh, some right, of this. Right. But here's just a- is the book commentary. I know you've told me this before, but I just you know a reminder for everyone, including the listeners, is the book commentary after the comic is finished. Some of it is, and some of it isn't. Got it. So, um, like this book four, I'm uh, the first bit I'm going to read here is from uh, book four, and I don't know. I didn't think to like grab the book itself and pull it out um, to check the pub date on that. But I'll do it right now as you as you are reading the quotation. Okay, so this is uh, on Spade Slick in the intermission. Hussey is talking about um, basically like the how how difficult it is for Slick to like navigate with one arm and has to keep flipping his sprite and stuff. Um, mm-hmm. This isn't the only time I frustrate villain characters with badly designed interface constructs meant for viewing story events. The stunts I pull with Caliborn's viewing device are a masterstroke in author on OC antagonism. Of course, it's critical that I do this. Somebody needs to train the supreme villain in his evil ways. It might as well be the author. And then we get to... Uh, nope. Okay, go ahead. No, 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 no. You can say, what's the pub date on that? Uh, It is uh, February 12th, 2019. Okay. So probably written in 2018, I would assume. Yeah. So this is based on publication mm-hmm. timeline. So this is after the comic has ended. Got so it. note there, Hussey saying, like, training the supreme villain, right? Um, mm-hmm. then book five, uh, this is, this is therefore later. So it's also post-publication. This is a long thing on Gamzee. Um, and I think actually, unfortunately, I'm going to, I'm going to read the whole thing. Sure. Um, <laughs> just because it, it, I don't know, it, it's, it's interesting. So this is on, mm-hmm. this is, uh, in book five. It's right after Gamzee goes murder mode. Gamzee is the juggalo troll. If you already knew about ICP and Juggalos, then his first conversation made it so glaringly obvious it was almost impossible not to groan in recognition of this fact. The process of creating 12 trolls, each of whom embodies satirical themes spoofing subcultures and various controversial internet profiles, was kind of a tall order, and it involved a bit of grasping at straws to fill out the group. The Juggalo troll was probably the most egregious example of me saying, fuck it, we're just running with a really dumb idea here, and that's fine, because it's funny. So Gamzee's entire identity, and all characterization and points of lore surrounding him, including his absurd religion, is grounded in an especially stupid joke, even by Homestuck standards. So this is why being introduced to ICP, by Dave, finally makes him snap. It represents a collision between his this satirical avatar, the fictional embodiment of this complete joke of an idea in the fourth wall, breaking exposure to the very content he was designed to mock. On some level, Gamzee understands that he's been forced to confront the fact that his entire existence is a joke. He was designed to ridicule that which he reveres, so he just fucking loses it and is never really the same guy again. It's almost a kind of dark, clowny enlightenment, an achievement of chaotic self-awareness. 
this. He quite effectively harnesses this grudge by getting revenge on the very story that created him for such humiliating satirical purposes. His method of revenge is linked to Caliborn's modus operandi, whom he comes to revere as the true godhead of his religious beliefs, which is to degrade and defile the story he inhabits. Gamzee's influence uh, appears to be arbitrary. Note what I said last time in the previous partisode about how Gamzee is a, becomes a plot device. Mm -hmm. uh, his influence appears to be arbitrary, always occurring at the exact right, parentheses wrong, moment to do the exact thing that will fuck things up in a totally incomprehensible way. He becomes an agent of plot chaos, of narrative entropy, and achieves a certain zen in the loathsome, capricious role he plays in the story. These tendencies are linked to his aspect and could be seen as a certain mastery of it. Make no mistake, Gamzee sucks. He is, on a conventional layer, a bad character. His personality is unpleasant, his actions are repellent, and his presence is always an affront to good taste and judgment. Yet, in my view, it's hard to avoid another conclusion that seems to contradict these awful truths about him. There is There are some potent themes and ideas running through his existence as a character, his actions, and the reasoning behind his dark turn. The reasoning, the reasoning behind all those things is because you made them up. Yes, right? Like... <laughs> <laughs> this, this is... This is silly. Uh -huh. This is silly thinking. Yeah. This doesn't... It is internally contradictory... Mm -hmm. It it this is an extension of Homestuck, right? Like this is this is the same shit I was just talking about of like making a game out of the whole thing, right? Like this narrative theorization, it is thin. Mm -hmm. It's not really consistent in any way, and it exists only to have you try to schematize it, right? Mm -hmm. Like you could write a fucking Robert McKee story sized volume, which I'm not a Robert McKee fan, by the way, but. <laughs> You could write that around this narrative mode that would be wholly internally consistent and completely nonsense, right? <laughs> In terms of like how stories work, how people read them, like what thoughts are, what a fictional character is, right? Like this is bewildering. Mm -hmm. Like the 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 idea that uh, I. I mean, this is it this is doing what just I'm actually I'm just repeating you. This is so homestucky. This is just doing what Homestuck constantly does, which is like uh <laughs> right. take the meta move and then try to fold it back into the story as if it's not meta. Right? Like Right, right. As if it's like part of the just the diet, you know, the diegetic world. Right. Uh so like, yeah, like Gamzee uh, realizes that he is somehow a like a mockery of a thing from outside the comic and therefore becomes uh, a force that allows the comic to reach its end by doing all the necessary things that are going to create Caliborn that is going to let Caliborn, uh, you know, right. do whatever he's doing and, uh, you know, implicitly, like, result in the rise of Lord English. Um, like... The the oh sorry go ahead oh go ahead. oh no you can say well it's it's as if you know to to kind of uh, zoom out into a metaphor here mm -hmm. which is always good you always want to do that it's always a great move <laughs> it is as if we read the text see spot run uh -huh. run spot run and then we said well the reason spot runs is because when you see a thing. It must run. Mm -hmm. This is why all stories about Spot involve running. Oh and in fact, it's the ultimate fulfillment of Spot because we saw it run. Yes. 
Uh huh. <laughs> it's like it's like if I were improving poetry, right? Like it's not it is not an actual narr- theorization of narrative. <laughs> it's just making shit up. And I guess you know, at the end of the day, what's the di- difference between those two things, right? You can read a lot of Roland Barthes and be like, I don't know, sounds like a guy making some shit up. <laughs> uh, but at least that, that seems to be internally consistent, applicable to narratives beyond itself. I think if you tried. If you took Homestuck's form of analysis, which I'm sure we've talked about this before. I'm sure people are doing this in the world, and I just haven't really run into it. Uh, if you took its like way that you think about story and character and everything you just said about Gamzee and tried to apply it to anything else, you would come up with the most convoluted explanations for what is happening in fictional worlds, right? Mm-hmm. Like, 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 again, to zoom out really quickly, right? A basic idea in um, uh, narrative storytelling, right? Uh, save the cat slash kick the dog, mm-hmm. right? And whether you like them or you don't like them is whatever. It is influential and it is a backbone at this point of traditional Hollywood narrative storytelling, right? You know that a character is good. They're walking down the street and they see a cat up a tree. And they take time out of their life to go get the cat mm-hmm. out of the tree. And you know they're a good guy, right? And why do we know they're a good guy? Because they took the time to get the little innocent creature out of the tree. That aligns us as an audience with them, right? The explanation of Save the Cat is not, well, in stories where cats are in trees, we know that a protagonist, capital P protagonist, will appear inevitably to remove them from the tree. And actually, it's the fulfillment of protagonism capital P protagonism to touch a cat that is attached to tree, right? Like that. No, that's not what's happening. Right. Is that it aligns you with an emotion, Mm -hmm. right? You feel a way about a character. And if you feel good about a character, you will feel good about their actions going forward. Mm -hmm. It aligns you, right? Same thing with kick the dog, right? Dude comes into apartment. There's a dog barking and he just kicks the shit out of it, which you should never do. That's bad. Right? You know that they're a bad person because why would you kick the cute little dog who's barking? Right. Right? Mm-hmm. It's awful. Mm-hmm. It is not because a villain, a capital B villain will appear. Capital V, not B. But a capital V villain will appear. And in its journey, inevitably, a dog must be kicked. In Transformers, the only reason that we know that Megatron is bad is in Transformers 3, he appears in his desert garb and kicks the hell out of a German Shepherd, solidifying him and also the whatever, the plane or the cop car or whatever, as the most evil villains possible. Like, that's not, that is working backward from the text to tell you about the nar- the nature of stories. Yes. Right? Which you always have, you always have to do, like, empirical work, but it is not uh, a structural uh, a priori, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you look at the world in front of you, and you determine what's happening, and then you kind of look at the feedback loop, right? Like, what are the kinds of stories that align us in particular kinds of ways? That's very different than taking the material in front of you and schematizing it to very particular narrative circumstances and saying that is a universe. Right. Stories, fiction, uh, it's a script, right? It is a script to prompt certain (laughs) feelings and ideas in you. Uh, but like not like you, you should not approach fiction as a way of explaining the world, right? <laughs> like it, it's a, it, it's not a math problem yeah. <laughs> either. You know what I right. mean? Like, like it, it doesn't have like eternal inputs and outputs, mm-hmm. right? It is always contextual and as you're right, it's about eliciting yes. from an audience mm-hmm. something. 
It is not about, I don't know, tracing the convolutions. And look, like I, that is not to say that Hussey's method is not effective for them, mm-hmm. right? For writing mm-hmm. or even understanding their own story, right? But it's a thing that you should understand is, and maybe people do understand this and we're just elaborating on it. I think we both find it so fascinating that we have to talk about it, right? Yeah. Like it in and of itself elicits a primal response from me. Well, <laughs> because you know what I yeah. mean? Like in a basic way, I just have to, to talk through it. Here I am uh, making this podcast because... <laughs> I, yeah, it's but I I get it. Now. Uh-huh. I get why you can't stop thinking about the thing. I, there's a little bit more uh, I have to. Read. I don't know. It's yeah. Oh please, go ahead. Please. <laughs> so this is from the same book. I just want to stop talking about it now. Otherwise, I'll never I, stop. I, I'm very sorry, but there's just one more piece here that I got to read. This is um, from later in the same book. Is it going to be like, and also I'm both of your parents or something? <laughs> is it going to be so bewildering that I won't be able to recover? Oh my god, man! I cannot believe how well you <laughs> called this. Oh. no. So uh, this is talking about specifically the flash where um, John walks. uh, It's John and Rose. Remember, uh, Rose has just gone grimdark. Um, John meets up Mm -hmm. with Rose. They go through that castle. Mom and dad have been killed. And this is the first time uh, John sees their corpses with uh, Jack Moore standing there. You think there's going to be a big fight. Um, And then uh, Jack stabs uh, John through the chest. Mm -hmm. He dies. Mm -hmm. Rose blows things up and we cut out of the battle scene. Um, so this starts out uh, Hussey talking about how uh, people complained that this uh, battle scene got started and then immediately cut away. <clears throat> so, uh, except for the fact that outside of any logical reasons for the battle to be cut short, you know this is going to be a bullshit fight scene fake out because I hate making battle scenes because they're a huge stupid waste of my time and energy no matter how quote unquote cool you end up thinking they are. I'm insanely right about this. And cutting this battle sh- short so I could go back to writing long conversations between Dave and Terezi was absolutely the right call. Fanboys always wanted me to do more cool fight scenes and got grouchy when I didn't. It's one of the many reasons why so many fanboys of a certain ilk are completely terrible. Actually, in many ways, a great deal of the thematic focus of Homestuck as a piece of metafiction revolves around my contempt for certain kinds of fanboys, which should provide a lot of material for discussion in the Act 6 books. Stepping out here, RIP, since the the books appear to be on halt. (laughs) Sounds great, right? right? Of course it does. And I know you can't wait to hear all my good shit when it comes to the gratuitous write-ups on Caliborn meta that is in store for you. In fact, I would go so far as saying that much of Homestuck and Act 6 especially reads as a sort of as sort of an allegorical poison pen letter to the worst types of fanboys and their deleterious effect on the media they consume. Pausing here again. This is an interesting formulation. The fanboys' deleterious effects on the media they consume. So fans (laughs) having an effect on the thing that they're watching. Right? (laughs) You're doing it to me. You're making me do this to you. You're making me treat you like an idiot and write you into the story as an asshole. Uh Uh-huh. So then, continuing, it, that is the (laughs) story, dispenses repudiation by profiling them, the bad fanboys, psychologically, determining what they value most in media, uh, and strategically turning the screws, and I'm I'm cutting out a thing here because it's actually, uh, uh, Hussey jumps, like, into the epilogues very, very briefly, so I'm just cutting out a line there, and strategically turning the screws through various acts of deprivation, fakeouts, long indulgences antithetical to their most cherished values, and so on. Popping out again. So here's another way to understand what's going on with Arania, is that uh, these big exposition dumps are there precisely to please uh, 
uh, certain types of fans and piss off like the Caliborn type fans, right? Right. Back to the, the thing. If you could boil down my relationship with the, quote, shitty fanboy archetype via Homestuck, all you have to do is skip forward to the part in Act 6 where I'm talking to Caliborn through his giant computer and tormenting him by gluing his mouse to the desk, blaring loud music he can't mute, etc. That scene says it all about my ongoing relationship with these guys and the manner in which I generally felt inclined to, quote-unquote, serve them through my work. So there again, uh... Hussey is paralleling themselves with Gamzee as like the servitor, right? Oh, right, right, right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like, well, look, you can make whatever you want. <laughs> I I fully believe that uh, in the absolute freedom of artistic expression, you can do whatever you would like to do on the planet. Uh, and uh, you know, I, 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 I would do literally. I would. Flee the country and begin working <laughs> in a tiki bar, uh, it, you know, on a resort before I spent years of my life shitting on people who were mean to me on the internet. Mm-hmm. It's just not worth it. Like, it's just fundamentally not worth building your whole life. If that is, you know, that, you know, of course, that's like, you know, uh, an after action report in some ways, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that's. Hussey kind of at the end of things remarking on all of this, right? But like, if ultimately I thought that I had to wade through the swamp of sorrows in order to tell (laughs) the story I wanted to tell and like spend a thousand pages, at least a thousand pages that are directly poking fun at people I hate who like make me unhappy on the internet, I would just not finish Homestuck. Mm -hmm. Or I would not do that. (laughs) Like, I just don't, I don't, I wouldn't do this. Mm -hmm. I simply would not. I don't understand. Yeah. Uh, you know, sometimes in the bonus ode that goes up today, there, there are many times in the um, in the fan productions of Homestuck where I say, I respect the artistry and I think this is very cool, but I, I just don't understand like where the impetus for this comes from. Check out the bonus ode if you would like it's to do that. It's on fan animations. It's on fan animations. We have a great time. Mm-hmm. We, we record a fair, a pretty long bonus ode for us. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, we, you know, we, we watch some, but in some of them, I just like don't have a good context for, or like it's part of a fan culture that I'm not a part of. And so I'm not a big fan of, or it's part of a genre that I'm not a big fan of, but I think the artistry is great. And I got to say the same thing about Homestuck proper, maybe right. Where it's like, I have no idea why you would burn so much of your human life on earth doing this thing where you are fighting with people via a meta text, Mm -hmm. right. That ultimately is like, I, you know, I, I don't use this word lightly, but kind of masturbatory in that, right? Like, I think mm-hmm. the point has been made. Yeah. Like, a lot already. Like, I think I think we're good, even at this point. I know we have a while to go. I just wouldn't do it. I, <laughs> Even though I, you know, I respect, I think that Homestuck is, even at this point, having not finished it, uh, monumental, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I think it is truly a work where that other things are not like it. it you know, it, it is a distillation of a lot of media impulses. And a product that not a lot of other things have been able to um, accomplish Mm -hmm. as readily. I have a lot of respect for Homestuck as an object, I think, at this point. I have zero respect for circling the drain of bad fan interactions as, like, uh, a wound you have to pick at to, to quote-unquote, serve Mm -hmm. (laughs) people who who are assholes to you. I just don't. No, no thanks. Yeah. 
Well, and, and sort of notably, and this is, again, jumping forward a little bit, there was uh, the Polygon piece that we referenced before that uh, sort of post-psycholonials right. where Hussey talks about, um, you know, accidentally creating a cult with Homestuck. And one of their strategies uh, in that piece that they talk about for, like, uh, uh, like managing, like, the, the outsized kind of vociferous fan base uh, I can't remember exactly their phrasing here, but it was something about becoming like the the invisible cult leader, right? Like basically retracting from the fans view, mm -hmm. right? And notably, this is what happens in this reading where Caliborn and note what Caliborn does, right? Caliborn is constantly collecting all of these little characters and then bugging Hussey being like, hey, what are their powers? What do they do? How do I use them? Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, and eventually Hussey just stops answering, <laughs> Right. That's the that's kind of that moment mm -hmm. of withdrawal, like in the comic. Um, and uh, just speaking a little bit forward, like in the next uh, partisodes reading, that's when the something awful thread starts talking about how it seems like a uh, hussy is withdrawing and like basically the creative teams appear to be fragmenting. Mm -hmm. So like there, there's something happening here where. Uh, what we are reading is happening simultaneous with a. A. I think, you know, real true ugly feelings or like uh, some sort of unhappiness that is precipitating a withdrawal from the project in, in a certain way. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think I, I don't think you could have these feelings and emotions that Hussey is very flatly describing and not, you know, want to withdraw or move away or whatever. Right. Like I, I say all of that stuff, but the reality is, is that like Hussey is having a bad time. Uh huh. I can't imagine. I can't imagine having a million readers and 500,000 of them are huge assholes or even 100,000 mm -hmm. of them are huge assholes, right? Like, it's not to say that, that the fans are assholes, but obviously they are interacting with Hussey in a negative way that is constant and real, and it is a real wound, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, that uh, there's a reason that Hussey's picking at it. I'm not... Um, I, I don't, you know, I don't want to undermine any of those real feelings. I just don't know if this is the right way to approach it, mm -hmm. right? Like, I don't, I don't know if meta text for your in your web comic is the way to approach the realities of harassment mm -hmm. um, and long form harassment. Um, and I would also take long breaks from my work too. <laughs> you know, I know those are coming up, but like. I, I might take a break that was so long that I never came back to it. Mm -hmm. um, if I had 100,000 people or 50,000 people or 25, you know, whatever fraction of a million you want is still a lot of people to be haranguing you about the, you know, not liking your characters or whatever. Mm -hmm. right? um, so, yeah, I get it. Mm -hmm. Makes sense to me. I just I don't know if this is the right coping mechanism for that. Yeah, some some questions. Um so I have a couple of like just interesting little historical notes to touch on, uh, but mm -hmm. I wanted to talk. Can we talk about fun stuff before we talk about history? Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, let's go to a fun thing first. Oh, okay, got you. Just because this is like, uh, this is kind of a bummer of an episode. So far. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, uh, we talked about Leprechaun Romance already. By the way, that happened uh, on St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> oh, very good. I do like this constant revision of what they are. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> uh, like they're frogmen at one point. These conversations with Caliborn. Caliborn is a much uh, a better drawn character at this point. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in terms of like what he's saying and how he's doing it, and he's he's really funny. Um, he's like they're frogmen now. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, I thought they were leprechauns. They're frogmen, <laughs> and they're made of felt or something. They're soft. Yeah. I hate touching them. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, I, I like I said, I the Calibor and Hussey conversations are some of my favorite parts of this comic, just because like it, it combines the absurdity of the felt like themselves with like this person who is on the one hand, like driven to collect them all. And on the other hand, like cannot stand them like the bit where uh, he's Calibor and stuck uh, in like the crowd of biscuits and eggs. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. What are and I love that constantly Caliborn's like, what are their powers? <laughs> and the narrator is overwhelmingly like, they don't have any. Or like, this is their power. Yes. Uh, and then um, the uh, the narrator's also narrator Hussey is constantly also like uh, uh, like spoiling their names, right? Like actually names them yeah. biscuits and eggs. It's like forget I called him. Or he's, I think it starts with eggs. It's like well, eggs does this, and Caliborn's like who's eggs? And he's like oh, forget I called him eggs, uh, and forget I called the other guy biscuits. You didn't call anyone biscuits. <laughs> so is this timeline wise? This is the origin point for the felt who then eventually later in their lives go on to do the intermission. Mm -hmm. And at the end of this reading, you know, post intermission, like a like phenomenal timeline for their life. Right. Mm -hmm. They are pulled out of the doll again and then re-recruited by Jack. Yeah. So how, how I would run this through. Um, is that, yeah, so Cal, uh, Hussey also gives Caliborn the idea to make them all mobsters because they have just like little pointed elf hats on at first. So the, right. the mobster idea comes from Hussey as well. Right, right. So informed by the previous narrative that we have experienced. Right. So uh, Caliborn, <laughs> like literally <laughs> like Caliborn is being trained, right? Like this is what Hussey has said yes, in the. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, Caliborn collects the felt, uh, at some point in some way becomes Lord English, uh, ends up in Alternia, uh, like, you know, Lord and Master of Alternia because of time travel shenanigans. Post-apocalypse on Alternia, the felt are all hanging out, uh, they meet with Spade Slick, he kills a whole bunch of them, uh, and then the intermission ends, uh, and now Spade Slick, who would have died when Alternia died, got rescued by Andrew Hussey, uh, nursed back right. to health. And now uh, that Spade Slick has taken the, the doll and brought all of the felt back to life and taken charge of them. Right. Uh, they've lived a weird life. Yeah. These felt. I mean, um, it's enchanted. They're leprechauns. When they come back, I'm going to say this. I was like, hell yeah, the gang's back together. Yeah. And you know, I hated these fucking guys. <laughs> <laughs> like, and, and I, I think I, we talked about this on Discord a little bit, right? Like, Act 6 really makes you appreciate everything that came before. <laughs> and I'm nostalgic. You know, it's a, what is the, the thing in kicking and screaming? Like, I'm nostalgic for last week. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> That's what, what the guy says, right? Like, in the No Bombach film, like, I'm nostalgic for six months ago when it, like, the world was so simple <laughs> that it was just these, the midnight crew fighting these green guys. Mm -hmm. And, like, their goofballery uh, was the maximal form of weirdness in this comic. <laughs> uh, but I like when they're together and then, like, Spade Slick. Um, recruits miss paint uh-huh as the eight ball <laughs> and now they're like a <laughs> yes 
And she says, he's like, you got to change. And she's like, I have just the, just the gown or whatever. Mm-hmm. And she changes into the, the, the moon gown or whatever. Yeah. It is. Galaxy uh-huh. gown. That I really like that. That's very good to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm also a huge fan of, uh, Viceroy Bubbles Von Salamancer's, uh, little, little intrusion. Well, that's a great gag, right? It's like, oh my God, we're inventing more people whose names we have to know. And it's like, no, we're not. We're not doing that. And specifically, right? Re- kind of, you know, it's again the meta move, right? But reframes like fluff versus content, right? Like finding out what's in that chest that Vriska's opened, it's the next piece of content, you know, in terms of like narrative plotty plot, plot, plot. And then we cut away from that to do the hussyism, right? Of like, fuck all that. We're going to learn about a bunch of shit no one cares about, yes. right? And, uh, you know, it's all this kind of fluff, 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 fluff. And then the character who needs plot to happen, right? Who, like, imagines herself as this, like, heroic character is literally mind-controlling and, and training everyone into helping her achieve her goal, right? This is, again, the kind of meta move that's going on in her as a kind of audience figure, right? Like, everyone needs to get in line and follow the plot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh <laughs> she interrupts the other stuff to like bring us in. I I thought all that was very fun. Mm-hmm. I just I love uh, on page six zero seven nine this bespoke uh, hero pose of Viceroy like uh, holding up their little what is this the the crook of frailty like their little magic wand. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> you would. Tr- yeah, Bubbles Bond Salamancers. I love this character. Um, yeah, and then the, all the. All the skeletons show up and Vriska is like interjecting throughout the narration. Fuck you. And the narrator hussy is like uh, acting spurned because uh, she punched them when uh, like the the ring was offered back after hussy first got killed. Right. Right. Um, Great stuff. Wonderful stuff. Any other. I did write my notes. I wrote my notes uh, for 6127. I don't even know what that is. 6127. Oh, so it's it's the crew all together shot. Uh-huh. <laughs> I wrote, quote, I love that she's still wearing her hat, too. Uh-huh. Uh, I wrote, Spade Slick and Miss Paint is the only relationship I'm invested in. <laughs> I, uh... I also love, um, and this is just, it's so great how, like, these characters, the Midnight Crew and uh, the Felt's, like, dialogue is conveyed through indirect discourse. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Boomerang? No, that wasn't it. Yeah. Like, he thinks Crowbar's <laughs> name is Boomerang, which is, of course, a callback to when Caliborn is trying to come up with names for everyone. And uh, Hussey's <laughs> like, well, what what about the seven on his hat? Doesn't it look like something in your, in your possession? Like, something, some sort of tool? And Caliborn's like, oh, I know a boomerang because it always comes back around like all the time shit I'm supposed to be about (laughs) right and that's the thing is like Caliborn again is a bad reader right like symbolism resonance circumstantial simultaneity all that kind of stuff it doesn't work on Caliborn (laughs) you have to you have to tell him explicitly Um, but uh, I also like that uh, the centaur guys yes Arthur gets to be a part of it too (laughs) yeah yeah, this is great. I just went, like, kill every other character. This is our main group. <laughs> the end. Get the mayor in here. That's the other good character. Get the mayor in. And AR, who has, what, completely disappeared yeah. from the comic at this AR's point? AR's gone. R.I.P. Uh, oh, yeah, that's right. Wait, blew up, maybe, right? Uh, uh, killed by Jack Moore. Oh, right. During Cascade. I forgot. Yeah, that's right. A lot of people died in there, I forget. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is great. Yeah, this is good stuff. Um, 
the section the section where Carcat is sitting backwards on the chair <laughs> and Dave is like, you have to turn around. <laughs> yes. Like this is, it looks it looks really bad. Having like his concerned uh, real talk with Terezi. <laughs> right. Uh I like that. A lot. That whole set, set of dialogue. And it's also yet another place where, like, Dave is being walked back but forward in the sense of, like, uh, Dave is no longer an author insert character and is getting more p- character development than basically anyone other than Vriska in this entire comic. Mm-hmm. Um, John will get some later, too. But, uh, you know, just in terms of, like, raw, what are, are the stakes moving in a way that happens on screen that you can trace? Um, you know, as opposed to like uh, Rose developing an alcohol addiction off screen entirely, mm-hmm. um, you know, which d- does nothing for me. And I think shows up in the next part of said. So we'll talk about that. Uh, 6133, the the going through Lord English's manner and getting uh, scared by the things in the rooms. That's still funny. <laughs> yes. The wolf um, head. Right. That Yeah, that wolf head. Um Spade Slick burning down the mansion <laughs> as he leaves and then realizing they're just in the like blankness of space after he's already done that. That's funny. Mm-hmm. That's good stuff. Like the writing there actually really made me laugh. This was their secret escape hatch. You see, it's all so clear now. When things get too hot to handle, the doc and his posse duck out of the clock and into the idiot wagon for a little spin through infinite oblivion with some giant octopus things. Thanks for the tip, crowbar. Thank you so fucking much. <laughs> I like that. That's fun. Uh, <laughs> uh, I do like that there is nothing better to me. This is tr- the true payoff of Homestuck. On 6224, a character literally says, uh, this is Dave and Carcat talking. Mm-hmm. And Dave says, oh, hey, we've had three years to figure all this like plotty plot, plot, plot stuff out. Why has no one figured that out? And Carcat says, no, no, we haven't. We haven't had three years. Oh my God, we're still traveling at the speed of light. And we only seem to be picking up steam. Dave says, I don't think that's possible. In fact, I'm not sure we were ever traveling at light speed. I think maybe there's been some bogus science and circulation that we chumped into getting behind. <laughs> Which is what I said on the episode. <laughs> and someone in the Discord is, I'm not calling anyone out here because obviously this is whatever. It's it's goofball stuff, right? It's uh, webcomic stuff. But someone was like, no, that works out. And then I was like, I don't think that does work out. Uh, and I think we had a conversation about it, uh, and it was, I think the opposite of what they were suggesting, or maybe the opposite of what I was suggesting. Someone was wrong. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I love that the comic has now been like, yeah, that didn't make any (laughs) sense. (laughs) Like that, that is no, in fact, what, who cares? Right. Like doesn't make any sense. Uh, it's just, uh, you know, science fiction shit. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) I like that a lot. That was funny. Um, I'm trying to think here. 6080, I wrote down. I, I wrote down two things that have no actual note. 68. That just say cool. Oh, no. 6080 is all the skeletons. I wrote fucking cool. Mm-hmm. And on 6104, I don't know what's on there either. Let me look it up. Oh, I also wrote fucking cool <laughs> for this one. Uh, and that's, I really do like that, right? So the transition from 60, 6100, mm-hmm. right? Where John's hand's coming through. Mm-hmm. To 6102 and you get like it's a clearly a font right Mm -hmm. or something and then like oh it's the homestuck logo backwards and then we cut to the actual homestuck screen you know like launch screen whatever and john's arm is sticking out into the sky Mm -hmm. uh i was like that's rad yeah and did you notice uh if you go back now cameron and look at that page where it first shows up john's Uh. arm is still there 
Oh my God, I didn't. Yeah. But I did, I was gonna. I was literally about to ask you about yeah. that. So good. To yeah, know. it's good to talk about this. So this is a huge thing. Uh, how this works, as Cameron is saying, is John reaches through kind of the house logo, and you see like his hand, you know, coming close to something, and then you're like, wait a minute, is that like a font? Is that a letter? And it turns out it's the Homestuck logo. Notably, and a thing that I haven't really remarked upon thus far, and something that we haven't talked about, is that once we hit Act Six. All of the logos become diegetic within the flash animations and in the images. Did you notice this? I did not notice that, but I believe so. It. Like for instance, when you see Purpo, and like historically, when Purpo has been introduced, right, we get like the logo that like the the Purpo name, right, like the label pops up on the screen and then fades out. Uh, in Act Six, mm -hmm. when you see Purpo, you see the logo like as a physical object floating in space next to like the the planet, right. So this has been building for a while and we get uh, John's arm uh, and then we get all of these panels from the previous parts of the story and John's arm is just in them somewhere now. And it's not just this list that you see. If uh, you go back, if you're reading this in the reader, you will go back and all of the original images will have been replaced with these retconned images, which is what the experience of reading this live was. Hussey went back and replaced all of these pictures in the story on the website. Mm -hmm. Meaning uh, that if you were reading Homestuck in the middle and this happened, suddenly you would just start noticing arms in pictures that weren't there before. <laughs> the reader, and, and like, this is how Homestuck, like, these don't go, like, Homestuck is a, as a stable object on the webpage. Like, if you go to the webpage right now, the arms are still there. In the print book, the arms are still there, and in fact, Hussey rather uh, frequently points out uh, when they notice in the commentary, they'll point out like, hey, did you notice that John arm in the corner? Um, hmm. So that is like the, the arguably, let's say, right, the finished object of Homestuck, if you were to pick it up as a book or whatever and read it, these should already be there. The the app, right, the reader app has made uh, an editorial decision, mm. right? And I, I don't I'm putting that word like in their mouths. Right. I'm, I'm doing that because like that's what this is. Right. Uh, uh, coming yeah, out of, yeah, of you know, academia dealing with historical texts. When you are assembling an edition of a text, you have all of these questions about like what you're going to do. And Hussey left the text with these retcons in place. Right. Already done. Uh, and to preserve the effect, and I, I think this is, you know, fine. Like, I don't think it's a bad thing. I'm not criticizing this. I'm just like laying out the dynamics here. Um, the reader app has made it so that you will see the original images until you hit this point in the story in an effort to kind of recreate the experience of the original retcon, which goes back to the thing I said however many partisodes ago about performance, right? And that you a performance only happens one time and everything after it is, is simulacrum, right? Mm -hmm. um, so this is one way that that happens is uh, we use kind of the dynamic capabilities of the computer rather than a print book to make something that is uh, more responsive. You know, something more like I, this is not exactly a great comparison, but right? Something like a pop up book, like I hit a point in the story and something happened and it changed the images. Um, and I don't know if you have any thoughts about that, but I just think it's worth sort of like underscoring and talking about that uh, this didn't have to happen. There could have been a reader app that just put up the images with the arms already there and arguably 
that would have given you a different reading experience, right? Someone who reads Homestuck with these arms already in place is going to have a different experience, a different kind of response, a different sort of thought process than someone who just reads it with none of these things there. So the, the story gets irrevocably changed. And at the same time, it's a change that we can, uh, with our you know infinite capabilities as, as computer people, uh, revert. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I don't think I have any big thoughts on it, but like... Uh... In in a comic where I don't know, a huge part of it is like recognition of patterns and like seeing things that happened before happen again, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's the big reveal about the big green sun, mm-hmm. right? Like, in you thought it was one thing and it's another mm-hmm. thing, right? You thought it, or you thought it was in one time and it was another time, right? That uh, the recontextualization of the thing you've already seen is the deal. I mean, to the point where in the reading that we did, I think for the next part episode. Uh, people are commenting on it, right? <laughs> yeah. Like characters are talking about it. Uh, or maybe actually Vriska did it in this one. I don't remember where that happens, but someone mentions it directly, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it, yeah, it's a hundred percent an editorial choice, right? To to exclude that because otherwise I would have been like, Michael, what is that weird little line mm-hmm. up by the Homestuck logo? And you would have had to say. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm, we'll have to wait and see. Mm-hmm. And I would have thought about that forever. And there would have been many times I read the comic going, well, is this where I'm going to learn about the little arm mm-hmm. thing? Whatever, the little line up there? Uh, yeah, so it would absolutely change it. I mean, uh, the the comic is built around telling you what to pay attention mm-hmm. to and what not to. And here's a thing that directs your attention. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, interesting directorial or editorial choice, not directorial. <laughs> Uh, uh, I, I don't know what the right one to make is. I think probably leaving it in mm. is the better, is the right choice. Well, I'm going to take maybe the counter proposal. I think there's something valuable okay. about having it work like this because I think, uh, and this is, you know, my bias as someone who read this live and experienced it live. Here's the mm-hmm. thought process for me. Here's what it allows me to arrive at. There are two different types of retcons. And this is a story that has always been built about, uh, out of and about retcons, right? About like throwing mm-hmm. a whole bunch mm-hmm. of stuff on the screen and being able to pick it up later and be like, hey, you, you remember this? It was important all along. And that's the key distinction for me is we this marks a shift. Right now, obviously, there's been an, an actual retcon in the sense that Hussey edited the uh, Caucasian peachy joke, Right. Um, but right, this is right. categorically different in that it is, you know, it's it's happening on the level of the narrative internal to the diegesis. Uh, all of the retcons um, up until now have been disguised, right, in such a way that, for mm-hmm. instance, even though when this comic starts, uh, the, if we're to believe, you know, the commentary and things Hussey has said, um, the Earth wasn't going to be destroyed at the end of Act One. Uh, nevertheless, uh, that's what happens, right? Uh, at the beginning of this comic, the kids weren't all going to be related. Uh, And that's a thing that, like, emerges in the process of doing the early acts. And because of the way the comic is written and because of the way, like, the retcons are sublimated or hidden behind kind of authorial maneuvering, um, they get to be things that were always already there. Like someone else we know. Um, And now we have... A, a retcon that is like egregious, right? It's not seamless. It's not a retcon that's like, oh my god, look at all this stuff that I just, I just didn't notice because I didn't think to notice it or I didn't think it was important. And what a fool I am! This is a retcon that is uh, obtrusive, sort of weird, hard to understand. 
um, if you don't know what it is. But if you're looking at it mm-hmm. like retrospectively, uh, it, it is a uh, retcon that discloses the artifice of the retcon itself, of the story and how it's made, right? Mm-hmm. What, but I, I guess the additional thing there would be if you read it archivally from the beginning with this arm sticking out, you would not know it's a retcon. Right. You know what I mean? Like, I, obviously, like, that's the nature of retcons, mm-hmm. right? But, like, it would just appear to be a stable loop of arms <laughs> sticking out of random places, right? And so, I mean, I think you're right. I, you know, like, uh, in the narrative abstract, I think you're mm-hmm. right. And as, like, a historical artifact, I think you're right. I think in terms of, like, um, setting this up, I mean, I, th- I think there's a reason Hussey does it, right? Mm-hmm. Um like changes the image and leaves it changed. I don't know. Yeah. I'm, I I think I'd have to live a different life. I'd have to some sort of uh, you know we're we're, we're going to explode this world. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to go through a lot of rigmarole, and then we're going to come back around Earth two. We're going to uh, leave the arm in, and we'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I, I I'm only uh, saying all this because it's a. a Topic I'm going to continue to think about for the remaining partisodes. Like you can expect me to revisit this idea of uh, uh, distinguishing between types of retcons and kind of what this comic is doing with its own history of retroactive continuity. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so that's kind of, I guess, the 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 big meaty stuff. Um, Just some historical notes, then, if if. uh, you're okay with that? Yeah. Okay. Let's do it. Just some, uh, what are people in the thread talking about? Um, they are complaining about the fact that Carcat is having dialogue logs with people, despite not being a god tier. Um, they are extremely worried at the implication that Gamzee and Terezi have had sex is going too far. Really? Yes. I, I did I did notice that sex is like uh and 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 sexual reproduction uh-huh. is like in the spotlight in this reading in a way that has rarely been like uh you know it used to be the case that teen feelings of melodrama were brought up to world historical impor- importance right like the universe revolved around teen feelings mm-hmm. now the universe revolves around sex yeah. Like, uh, like, literally, the cherubs narrative is the universe is born out of not of like a, the feelings that turn into a big frog, right? Mm-hmm. Like the actions you do and the feelings you have about it that are metaphysically reprocessed into the structure of the universe. It's like heterosexual reproduction gravitates people who hate one another toward one another to then birth the universe, mm-hmm. and so like that's the big framework, and then micro within that is the one that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, Anyway, sorry, sorry, not not to go off on a different thing, but I did notice that too. Yeah, no, I, I think it's good to point that out because you are correct. Um, and by the time cherub sex comes around, people have ceased debating whether or not it was going too far to imply that Gamzee and Terezi may have hooked up. Um, lots of people debating the ethics of Riska's mind control plot, like mind controlling all of the uh, uh, like ancestor ghosts. Which is funny because of the, again, because of the way Homestuck works is that there are like three full days of people in the thread just like arguing more Vriska time, right? We're right back to Vriska chat. Um, it's like, oh my God, Vriska has finally gone too far enough again <laughs> to, 
uh, she's going to get her comeuppance. Um, and then like it, it ends up being Tavros who shows up in the comic to explicitly say, like, I don't think the thing that you're doing is like nice and good. And I'm like sick of dealing with you. So I'm leaving. I love that. I, I, and then he, everyone begins flying away. Yes. <laughs> it's really good. I think I like that they all just like. It's not again. It's not teen feelings that are then brought into um, a narrative structure, right? Uh, you know, because before it's like of world historical importance, or like teen feelings and melodrama that bubble up into like duels and battles and like chainsawing people apart or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. It's just like people who have feelings and are like, I'm not going to hang out with you anymore. <laughs> it's like a weirdly enough it, as the comic gets more science fiction fantasy weird the character relations become much more grounded. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's just like, I'm out. I'm done. Yeah. I I, I think that's very funny. Uh, Yeah. How do people take that? Like a character standing up for himself? Um, They are like, ha ha ha. Like, you know, they're all for it basically. Right. I mean, of course. And again, like whenever you speak in blanket terms, there are people who are going to be Vriska stands until, until they die. And they're like, Tavros shouldn't have said that to Vriska. Uh, but in right. general, people think it's extremely funny to like finally see Tavros uh, grow a spine and just be like, you suck. Like, I don't know why I'm hanging out with you. <laughs> and the fact that he does, oh. he just like he just flies away. He just like like flies into the sky. <laughs> yeah, he just flies off, which is which is great. I did. Uh, oh, I do know. Sorry. Uh, I can tell you really quickly. The character who was like uh, that I was referring to earlier, who like in the middle of something is like, this is blah, 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 bullshit, whatever. Mm-hmm. It's Solix talking about his own backstory. <laughs> yes. uh, and he's like, whatever, who cares? And he says, I'm uh, he's like, I'm going to wear a shirt that says, don't ask me about my disability or my backstory or something. Oh, no, mortality. Yeah. From now on, I should just wear a shirt that says, don't ask me about my disability or my mortality. Then everything would be fine. <laughs> right. Because at this point, he is like, um blind in both eyes he has at previous points been blind in one eye or the other uh and uh now he and he's like three or four different types of dead <laughs> like he every yeah. time he dies he only like half dies <laughs> yeah it's a lot going on i mean and purposefully hussey is clearly tired of it mm-hmm. uh, which i like but well that's interesting that uh you know people can't get away from good old talking about Vriska. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, yeah, the, the 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 scene where she's like, you know, basically, I'm going to I'm going to make myself relevant no matter what. And then she takes off that pirate coat and throws it down and she jumps down. There's like a giant flaming X that marks the spot of the treasure. So it's this really like badass, like her falling from a cliff and all these flames below her. Um, there, right. there are people who are like, oh, this is it. Like Vriska is finally ultimately turning evil. <laughs> huh. Um, Yeah. Uh, and then uh, just one other, I guess, sort of interesting thing. This is barely interesting. It's interesting if you're me. Um, the song that ca- that plays in Caliborn Enter when Caliborn enters the medium is called Eternity Served Cold. Um, it was originally called Eternity's Shylock. And okay. yeah, this is the point where that title gets changed because uh, Shylock, if you are not aware, is a character from Shakespeare uh, from the play The Merchant of Venice, which is a comedy. Um, 
but he is the villain and he is a, mm-hmm. a Jew, right? He is a, a Jewish money lender um, and he is the villain. Yeah, because it, it is also a derogatory term for money lender. Yes, right. Right. So, At the same time, it's, both, it's a both and scenario here. Right. And this is because that is why it is a derogatory term for money lenders because of the play. Oh, that's a tr- yeah. That's a, that literally is the next question I was about to ask you. Is it the play comes first, or did the term come first, and then Shakespeare just took the low hanging fruit of the name? Yeah, but no. Uh, the in- you've answered the question. Yeah, the interesting thing that I think uh, either James Shapiro or Stephen Greenblatt points out um, about Shylock is that that it, the play takes place in Venice, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, and the characters have generally Venetian names. Shylock is an English name. So like that's that's oh like like that was the like people were running around with that name yeah Shylock is an oh, an archaic form of the name uh, Whitehead uh, okay yeah <laughs> I don't I don't want to know how that happened or I mean Ishai means, means white and Locke means hair I I don't want to know okay what did Sorry. I what did I say um, I told you I don't want to know I ugh, ugh, this is this is my leprechaun romance Cameron um. <laughs> Can't, just can't help. <laughs> anyway, right? Uh, that's that's a it's an interesting historical fact about the play that's neither here nor there. Uh, other mm-hmm. than like people are like, well, that's interesting. Like, why would Shakespeare choose to give this character a, 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 like? And everyone recognizes that the character is Jewish, right? The play is deeply anti-Semitic, and it comes from an anti-Semitic culture at an anti-Semitic time. Um, so you know that this is one of the scholarly questions that kind of orbits that name is like why did Shakespeare do this and you can read mm-hmm. Greenblatt and Shapiro and figure that out uh, what they think. Um, so the composer of the song Malcolm Brown he says that he has only ever heard the term uh, Shylock used. I mean he's used it uh, he's heard it used to describe money lenders and he didn't realize that it had like an anti-Semitic basis. Um, and so when people in the fandom are like hey did you happen to know that this uh, song title is maybe not so hot uh they change it to eternity serve cold and of course uh because it's the something awful thread there are people who are like well that's just that's just more censorship oh these tumblr sjws and really it was meant to be a money lender like he meant it as a money lender rather than a jewish person so it should just be uh it, they should just keep it the same because it just means money lender and of course I'm there. That's worse. Uh, yeah, it's actually worse. <laughs> it is actively worse. And so, of course, I'm there and I like bust into the thread and I'm like, hey, hold up. Uh, I'm in grad school and I'm a Shakespeare scholar and I'm just going to like, you know, fiat this. No, <laughs> like there's no way in well, which. I'm my, my name is Michael Lutz and I'm here to say that Shakespeare said it in this exact way. <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> uh, so the, you know, the, it, it's not a huge uh, uh, dramatic moment, but it is just right. a thing that I remember and a thing that I, a thing that I always remember because I'm a Shakespearean. Speaking of which, mm-hmm. uh, if you uh, are interested in hearing me talk more about 16th century theater, the next bonus-ode that's going to drop next month is going to be Cameron and I discussing uh, Francis Beaumont's play, The Night of the Burning Pestle from 1607. Why are we discussing that on a Homestuck bonus? episode because it is about a play that is getting ready to start in 1607 in London, but a man in the audience stands up and says he doesn't like what the play is going to be about, so he gets up on stage and he starts directing the actors himself and telling them what to do, and then his wife gets up on stage with him, and they both start commanding the actors around and changing the story, and it gets uh, increasingly chaotic. So uh, I think it'll be a really interesting parallel uh, discussion to have over in the bonus episodes, patreon.com slash rangetouch. <clears throat> Good spiel. Great stuff. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and uh, really, that's it in terms of uh, historical notes, because as I said last time, this that was Homestuck has kind of peaked and you can feel it in the thread. It is sort of lower energy. Um, and if there are I'm, there are discussions happening on Tumblr, but one of the things that Andy uh, who uh, made the uh, Homestuck Tumblr Explorer for us. Again, thank you so much, Andy, uh, has noted is that 2013 is when just uh, the amount of posts on Tumblr tagged Homestuck, or extant posts, we should say, uh, just craters uh, comparatively to what it was before, whether that's because people stopped posting about it or because a lot of blogs have been deleted, uh, is anyone's guess, but like there's, you know, statistical stuff going on, uh, on the Tumblr side too, apparently. So, hmm. yeah. And other than that, I, I, well, we, we've gotten a lot of tweets to that effect. Yeah, actually that was the, the most common response to the previous part episode was like, ah, when I stopped reading, <laughs> Yeah, I've seen that. So makes uh it's interesting. Yeah. Um one last thing I guess to say, unless you have other historical information to provide. Nope, that's it. Uh the mayor's friendship is a universal constant. I love it. That's come I think that's coming back. <laughs> that's another shot called. The mayor's friendship will be plot critical in the end. Mm. If it isn't, I'm going to be so pissed off. <laughs> That'll be your heel turn. It is. Yeah. That's why, I, even though I spent a full 15 minutes of this episode split up ranting about the narrative physics of uh, Andrew Hussey's uh, creative mind, mm -hmm. the thing that will truly turn me against this is if the mayor is not important at the end of things. Hmm. 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 Well, we will find out over the course of only the next two episodes because, uh, oh. well, actually, hold on. Let me. No, I guess it's three. I, I got a little ahead of myself. Technically, we have like, like there are going to be uh, three episodes, uh, episode 10, episode 11 and episode 12. That'll uh, bring us to the end of Homestuck. We'll find stuff out. Episode 13 will be on the epilogues. So really, like, you know, the end is in sight. Light is at the end of the tunnel. We'll figure out what's going on with the mayor. Um, yeah, we'll be done in what, January? Yeah, something like that. It's interesting. So we'll be done in January 2023. And then we'll probably take like a month off, I would say, or something like that. And mm -hmm. then we'll start another series, mm -hmm. uh, you know, of something else. I think the next thing we're going to do is going to be a little bit shorter. Uh, if only to gear up for a longer thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, yeah, and just mm -hmm. to uh, actually clarify there, um, uh, we will end the main comic in January and then the epilogues will be either in February or possibly if we do take like a breather between the, the, the end of the thing itself and the beginning of the epilogues, I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll, you and I will have a discussion about that off mic because the epilogues maybe are a little long. I don't know. It depends on what our Just King Things reading schedule looks like. Right. Uh, uh, what? What? Which doorstop do I have to read that month? Uh, yeah. In a general, I think. Well, I my hope and desire is for us to power through the epilogues to to close the door on Homestuck once and for all, and then Homestuck made this world. It will close. The door will close on Homestuck made this world, and then we will begin after some sort of short hiatus, a different series about something shorter than Homestuck, and then we'll take another break sometime after that, and then another long thing that'll take at least a year, I think. Mm. That's in my imagination that we have not talked about. That's what I imagine. Okay. 
uh, well, I think that sounds good. And uh, join us in two weeks when we are back here and we will begin episode 10 with partisode 10-1. And I would like you to read until page 6474. Goodbye!